Please turn with me again this afternoon to that text that we were looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians and the third chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just know what the Apostle says again there to these Corinthians. He's, just as a reminder, he's told them in the very opening words of this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he's writing, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, a local, visible expression of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ecclesia. And then he goes on and he describes them here, Called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And then notice in that first chapter also what he says, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And now notice his reasoning, verse 10, Now I plead with you in light of that, that you are the church of God at Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, all that by way of, this is how he introduces this letter to these people. They are a church. They are a local church. And then when he comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this about the local church. Verse 16. Do you not know that you, church at Corinth, and I add it, you, church at Bluefield, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You all collectively together have this high and dignified calling. You are the temple of God where God comes and dwells in a most special way. And it is the epicenter of worship. You are the temple of God. And you are that because the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God... God will destroy him. Actually, the word is the same. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple? Church at Corinth. Which temple? Church at Bluefield. You are. Now, with those truths before us that we considered this morning, that are to be inherent in our thinking... It's then needful for us to ask, especially in light of the warning given in verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, which temple you are. Especially in light of that, it behooves us to ask the question, how do we then guard and keep these things that Paul is telling us here? How do we keep these things before us? How are we to press deeply into our conscience the way our thinking and our doing must be regulated by all this? That's the question. Now, 
<clears throat> I may have answered some of that this morning just because it was on my mind and, and I was wanting to talk about it anyway. So some of this may be repetitive, I don't know. But I do hope that by the help of the Spirit of the living God, that He will truly impress this upon our hearts so that we might have our conscience, have these pegs well driven into our, our conscience, into our thinking and our doing, so that we might be regulated by these things. So how is it then that we do that? That's always the big question, right? And firstly, I would say this. In considering this text, these words here ought to make us serious, brethren, about keeping truth. They ought to make us serious about keeping truth, particularly about who we are, and keeping that truth always before us. I said that's the whole point of the question that he asked, do you not know? And the response is, yeah. We do know. And the whole point of him asking that is not only that they should agree with him, yeah, we do know that, but that it should be controlling, that it should be governing. And we ought then to make these truths, to, to make ourselves to be serious about keeping these truths. Jude says this, in writing to, in writing to the people that Jude was addressing, he says in verse Three, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And this doctrine, this truth about the church, and about how that it is instricably, our salvation is inextricably bound to the church. That when Christ saves you, He brings you into the church universal, and the intentions are that you, believer, are not only in the church universal, but that you are a part of the church local as the visible expression of that universal church. And we are to contend earnestly for all things pertaining to the faith. When Jude says the faith, he means doctrine. But one of those things that we are to contend earnestly for is that we might preserve this reality about ourselves. You see, these Corinthians that Paul is writing to had forgotten. That's why he asked the question again, to stir up their mind. But they had forgotten who they had been prior to salvation. Paul reminds them here. And they had forgotten what they now were regarding themselves as a body of believers and the fact that they are the temple of God. And they have forgotten who it was that had made them to be that. And they had forgotten what it was that they were to be about as this temple of God. They had forgotten it. They let it slip from their thinking. They had become distracted by other interests. That's important. There are a thousand other interests to draw your mind away. And what I said this morning, I stand by it. That this church, this temple of God, 
is so vital, is so necessary to your life as a believer that you cannot be everything that God intends you to be apart from it. You can't. And these Corinthians had allowed that to begin to happen. They had become distracted by thousands of other interests all around them. And they began to focus on men. Oh, I want to follow this guy. Oh, I want to follow that guy. Oh, I want to follow this guy. They had begun to become distracted about the culture around them. And so he addresses that whole matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where we actually have the most extensive instruction about the Lord's Supper, chapter 10, chapter 11, regarding the Lord's Supper. What's the whole purpose of Paul giving instruction to the church about the Lord's Supper? It was because they had begun to join themselves to idols. Other interests caused them to slip in their thinking with regard to this high and this dignified and this vital calling to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of God. And in that distraction, what began to happen was that it introduced a factitious party spirit. And when I say party spirit for you young folks, I don't mean going out and and, living in lasciviousness and debauchery, which was kind of the temptation. But what I mean by factitious party spirit was, again, that they were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of... What does any of that matter, Paul says? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Cephas? You're built upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's upon that foundation that you are made the temple of God. You're the field of God, the building of God, he says to them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But this this slipping in their thinking about all of these things, about their high and their dignified and vital call to be a church, to be the temple of God, it was counterintuitive. That's my point. And it was destructive. Being drawn away by other interests. Prioritizing other things before the local body of believers was destructive to the very integrity of the church. It was destructive to the very foundations of the church. It was destructive to the very infrastructure of the church. It was destructive to the very purpose of the church. It was destructive to the very power of the church. Again, it was the... It was the message, it was the foolishness, you remember, of the message preached... And the supposed weakness of a crucified Christ that had saved them. Not man's wisdom. Not the world's wisdom. Not man's intellect. Not man's charisma. But Christ and Him crucified. That's what saved them. Utter nonsense to the world. Utter nonsense to the world. But the power of God to those being saved by it. Further, it was God's calling... Not anything found in themselves that joined them to Christ. What explains you, Christian? I think that's an important question to ask ourselves sometimes. Because again, we can become so distracted by other things. The church can become so distracted by other things. The church is so prone to hang banners that have nothing to do with who they are in Christ. 
What explains you, Christian? Is it that you homeschool? Is it that you have 50 babies? Nobody here has 50 babies. Bill's the closest. Is it that you have an education? Is it that you have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a doctorate degree? Is it that? What explains you, Christian? What explains this church? What explains this church? Why are we here? How did we get here? What explains the convictions that drive you? What explains the convictions that drive this church? What explains the doctrines that we love and we hold to and that we've seen and known? What explains any of that? Well, I say this very dogmatically, and I hope you'll take it in the right spirit. It's not you. Any one of you. You are not a church. You are not who you are. And we do not have the convictions that we have by anything in us. It's God's calling the foolish. It's God's calling the weak. It's God's calling the base and the insignificant, the despised, and those things that are not. And if there's anything that you truly know, if there's anything that we truly know, if there's anything that we truly grasp of God, that is by God's doing. It's because God has been pleased to open our eyes to those things. It's because God has been pleased to impart His Spirit and to give light to us that we might have the mind of Christ. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how much money you make, what kind of profession you're in, what kind of level of education you have, what kind of banners you want to hang over what you do or who you are. None of that matters. You are who you are as a church, as a body of believers, as the temple of God, because God has made you to be that. Paul puts it to them in this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, he asked the question, why do you boast as if you had received it? And oh, what a great danger it is to us that we should grab hold of certain things about ourselves, certain things about what we believe, certain things about the fact that we are a church, and begin to boast in them, to become arrogant about them. And Paul says, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Well, here's my point. They boasted because they had gotten sloppy. They boasted because they had departed in their minds from the things that they had been taught about what was true of them. That they were, that they were wallowing in their blood and that God was pleased to reach down and pluck them from the masses. And it wasn't because of anything in them, but it was all because of His mercy, all because of His grace, all because of His God, kindness. And anything that they were, it was all because Christ Jesus had become to them wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The commentator Lang says this about these Corinthians. 
He says, there was a strange and a criminal obscuration of true Christian feeling among these people. Inasmuch as they were conducting themselves just as if they possessed it not. They were conducting themselves just as if they were not who Christ had made them to be. Because of this strange and criminal obscuration of true Christian feeling. And they knew not what belonged to their profession. You understand what he's saying in that? What he's saying is that by their forgetting this truth... You are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And that you are holy because God has made you to be holy. By their forgetting the importance of the doctrine of the church and the expression of the church in the local visible body of Christ. By their forgetting that they were the temple of God. There was a darkening effect upon their thinking which worked itself out in the way that they interacted with one another, with the way that they interacted with the world, and with the way that they interacted with God. Now, that's serious. Because they had let slip from their mind this high, dignified, holy, and important calling. Because they had let it slip in such a way that they were failing to prioritize it. And they were lifting up other things as more important to their interest. There was a darkening effect upon their thinking. And that darkening effect upon their thinking worked itself out in their, in their interactions with one another, in the way that they interacted with the world, and in the way that they interacted with God. They lost their bearings. They lost their bearings. And it was evident. Because not only did they have division... but then they had idolatry and they had sexual immorality... They were not walking with God the way that they should walk with God. And therefore, when they came into the church, they were not interacting with one another the way that they should interact with one another. And the other underlying truth that's assumed by Paul is that those things which God makes known to us, and especially this truth that we are the temple of God, ought always to be in our thinking. We ought to labor to purposefully keep this at all times in our thoughts. And the lesson is twofold. Beware, oh beware of those things which would call your attention away from what God has clearly made known to you and that are central to your identity as the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh beware of that, please. I beg of you, I plead with you, my dear brother, my dear sister, if there are any things in your life that have become of more important interest to you, remember who you are and remember what God has made you to be and remember that you are part of the church and you are part of the temple of the living God. Beware. And then secondly, guard these truths with the utmost jealousy, with fear and trembling, lest we forget and they be obscured or lost forever. You know, our Constitution uses that language. We read our confession 
on a yearly basis so that the things that are important to us, those things which we have believed, which God has made us to see, and which God has made us to believe, and which God has made us to recognize as the backbone of who we are and is all important to us as a local congregation, we read them so that we will not lose them, so that they will not be obscured. But you know the great danger is that we can actually read them every year and still lose them and obscure them. Because we don't labor to see the importance of them. And I, I just want to take this opportunity to fence that, to fence this church in and say, brethren, we are to earnestly contend for those things that we believe. And the church is one of them. Don't forget this. And the underlying truth that's there, that, oh, if we forget then by and by they will be obscured and it will have a darkening effect. It will have a darkening effect on the way that we interact with one another, the way that we interact with the world, and the way that we interact with God. And maybe for some of us, it has already had that darkening effect, which is exactly why I'm preaching it. The same way that Paul asked the question, do you not know? You do know. Don't forget it. The second thing, we must guard jealously and diligently work into our conscience is that it is each member that constitutes the whole body and therefore makes the temple what it is. And that has two implications for us that I believe are extremely important. One of them I'll just state very briefly. And that is that no member is more important or less important than the other. That's one implication. That each member, it's each member that constitutes the whole body, which means that one member is not elevated above another, or that one member is of lesser value than another. Paul addresses that matter later in using the analogy of the body. And that analogy stresses the interdependence of each of its parts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I won't take time to read it. You can go and read it. And how he says, you can't say that you have no need of the eye. You can't say that you have no need of the foot. That's his point. There's this interdependence. So that every member of the body is incredibly important. But here's what I want to emphasize more than that. What it should say to each one of us is that my commitment to this congregation matters. Are you a member of this church? Then what this truth... You are the temple of God should say to you, is it my and me and you, my commitment to this congregation, it matters. And it therefore lays upon us a fearful responsibility. You all are the temple of God. That's central and fundamental to all Christian churches and to all true worship. And it ought to evoke in us certain responses. For instance... You cannot be this, the temple of God, or do this, worship God, in any other way than by gathering 
yourselves together. I don't mean you can't worship God in any other context. But what I mean is that you can't worship God in the context of being the temple of God in any other way than by gathering yourselves together. You see, worship worship in any other way is never a worthy substitute for the corporate gathering of the Lord's people. Worship in any other way. That's the premium that is placed upon the corporate gathering of the people of God in the Scriptures. That there is never another worthy substitute for our corporate gathering together of the Lord's people. The designation, you are the temple of God, is not given to those who worship in private. It's not given to those who worship before a television, or a radio, or a computer screen. That designation, you are the temple of God, is not given to families. The pledge is given only to His gathered church that are regularly and continually coming to Him corporately. That is so vital. Let us not forget that. Secondly, what this ought to do is to promote within each of us a joyful and an eager desire to be fully participatory in the life of the church. There's nowhere else, I said it this morning, there's nowhere else in all the world wherein I will encounter my God. There is nowhere else in all the world where I will encounter my Savior so manifestly present, so near. There's no other place in all the world like this place. God has said, you are the temple and I will... Let, let me just read this to you. I, Paul uses the same language over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You see how that darkening effect had a relationship to the way in which they were interacting with the world around them. So Paul says, don't be unequally, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. God. There he says it again. As God has said, here he qualifies it, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. There's nowhere else at this moment in this world wherein we come closer to God than when we gather together as His people. So that when we think about the gathering of ourselves together, our hearts, at the, at the very thought of that, our hearts might rise in strength and our hearts might rise with an eager anticipation provoking us to jealously guard this that God has so graciously given we must never let that go from our minds. So many of the Lord's people forget this. The church is just an appendage. The church is just something that we do one day of the week. 
The church is where you gather to meet God face to face in this earth. And when people forget this, what happens is they don't prepare themselves to worship. When people forget this, they don't rise with anticipation. When people forget these things, they don't labor when present. They simply become passive observers. Do you realize, brethren, do you realize that you have been given such a privilege? In the Old Testament, the people had to worship by proxy. They had to worship through somebody else. The priest did all the work for them. They couldn't come near. They had to stand at a distance. But brethren, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't worship by proxy. You are the priesthood of God. But see, when we fail to keep this before us, what happens is we become passive observers. Oh, somebody else is praying. Oh, the pastor's preaching. And I'll just sit back and I'll turn myself on to cruise control here and coast through this thing. No, brethren. Even the opening up and the preaching of the Word and the hearing of the Word is worship. How you hear the Word of God when God is speaking to you is worship. It's worship. Or even worse, when people forget this, they absent themselves altogether and then they wonder why I have no sense of Christ in my life. If you're absenting yourself from the gathering of the Lord's people, don't wonder why you have no desire for Him. Don't wonder why I'm struggling in this or that way. Brethren, I'm telling you this. And you can check it from page to page. If this truth about this high and holy calling is obscured in your thinking, it will have a darkening effect upon your life. Because you were never intended, being saved by the blood of Christ, you were never intended to walk alone. Listen to this quote by George McDearman. We love Pastor McDearman. I thought this was a good rule by which we can measure some of these, gauge some of these things in our life. He said this, Your preparation, I wish I could say it the way that he said it, but I can't. Your preparation is going to be the authoritative commentary on your consciousness of who you are coming to meet and your desire and determination to meet with Him properly. How you prepare yourselves to come into the household of God, into the temple of God, and to meet with God is the authoritative commentary on how high you see this calling. How important this is to you. It's an authoritative commentary on your heart. Now use that rule and guide to search yourselves. And I would add something to that. I would add that your preparation and consistent, diligent participation is a commentary on how you view the church as a whole. God is doing something marvelous in the earth. 
He's gathering His people together. He's raising up a spiritual house. He's raising up living stones that are being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in the Spirit. And I'm a part. And you're a part by God's design of that together. Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What a privilege. What a responsibility is laid upon each one of us. If this is so, if these things are true, that we are the temple of God, then, and that each member is a living stone that God is using to build up and to construct this temple, then I dare not become lazy. I dare not become indifferent. I dare not become forgetful. But let me go eagerly that God might come and that God might act upon me and then by each of us together He might indeed raise this spiritual temple wherein His name is made known and He is exalted. The knowledge of these things is wonderful, brethren. And it ought to provoke us to say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go and draw near to this place that's called the footstool of God. Let us go and draw near to this place where God says He records His name. Let us go and worship Him there together. Oh, how we must guard that very thought, that very truth that each of us matters I have one more point, but I want to I just want to try to use an illustration maybe. You're living stones. If you were endeavoring to erect a building and you were grabbing bricks, and one or two or three bricks were left out, would that have an effect upon the building? It would have some effect upon the integrity of the building. Or what if the stones were neglected and one or two or three began to decay? They began to crumble. I've got a fire chimney that's doing that right now. Mortar is coming out of it. And I'm looking, waiting for it to topple. Do you matter? Yeah. Does your pursuit of God matter? Yeah. That you're coming into this place and being an integral part of what God is doing here matter? Absolutely it matters. And then thirdly, we must guard with supreme jealousy the knowledge of our utter dependence upon the Spirit of God. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book that I've been reading. It's called Gospel Worship. I would highly commend it. Highly commend it. But towards the end of this book on gospel worship, Jeremiah Burroughs says this, That people is a blessed people that do observe the worship of God as God has commanded them. That is, they observe it in truth. 
The regulative principle is what he's talking about there. But then notice what he says. But the main thing is, the main thing is, all that we do, it must be acted by the Spirit of God. It is not enough to have true silver and gold, but it must have the right stamp, or else it cannot go for current coin. And so it is not enough that the things that we offer to God in His worship be God's own, be what we have warrant for out of God's Word, truth, the regulative principle, but it must have the stamp of the Spirit of God. There must, he says, be acted, thou must, you must be acted by divine principles in all that you do. There must be, he repeats it, the stamp of the Spirit upon that which is tendered to God, else all of it is nothing. I find it so interesting that in this church, Corinth, while they practice what is labeled spiritual gifts, it was all devoid of the Spirit. They were being carried away. He uses the comparison to what they were before they came to Christ. Being carried away, however, they were led by their idols. And he's saying to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14, that's exactly what you're doing with these gifts. You're taking these gifts and you're being carried away and led any way that you would. You have gifts given to you by God and you are using them as you see fit, not as God sees fit. And I find that very interesting. Because the distinguishing mark and the stamp of the Spirit of God is not gifts. Primarily. The distinguishing mark and stamp of the Spirit of God is unity. The distinguishing stamp and mark of the Spirit of God is love. It's peace. It's edification and it's a high view of God. A reverent view of God and a readiness to come and to worship Him. Not a focus on self. Therefore, it's incumbent upon each member of the church to keep up fellowship with God so as to be being filled with the Spirit. Because, brethren, if we ourselves fail to do this in our daily walk, then that will not only have an immediate effect upon the individual, but it will have a very real carryover with respect to this temple of God. If we think that we can live our lives in such a way where we are not submitting to the Spirit of God on a daily basis, that we are not endeavoring to be being filled with the Spirit of God on a daily basis, and then come in here and experience God by way of worship, we're mistaken. We're mistaken. Let us always be careful then, brethren, not to grieve His Spirit by any known, repeated, and tolerated sin. And let us be diligent to not quench the Spirit by neglect of those means of grace given us by God and thereby extinguish His gracious influences upon us. Because if, he, if the gracious influences of the Spirit of the living God are extinguished upon me and you, they will be extinguished here. 
Rather, we must labor to keep the oil in our vessels. We must labor to keep the wicks trimmed and ready. If we would have light, if we would have the heat of the Spirit of God upon our worship, illuminating and warming our hearts to truly honor His name. And then, brethren, let us believingly, consistently, and purposefully pray for the Spirit. I think that's a clear directive given to us over in Luke chapter 11. I find this text interesting. I don't think this is a clear directive given to us. The Lord Jesus says, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's a clear directive. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit. And here's what's interesting about Luke chapter 11. The disciples had come to Him having seen His life. They had come to Him having seen His power. They had come to Him having seen is often withdrawing to hidden places to seek the Father's face. And there must have been some clear line drawn for them between the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that they were provoked to ask of Him instruction, not on how to heal, not on how to preach, but how do you pray? Teach us, Lord, how to pray. And the culmination of His instruction to His disciples about their prayer lives ends with these words. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And you can't divorce those words from the corporate flavor of verse 2 in chapter 11 when he says, When you pray, say, Our Father. And what we're taught by our Lord there is that when we pray, this should be the consistent, purposeful, and believing aim of our prayers. That God would indeed pour out copious measures of His Spirit upon His gathered church. That He would continuously open the doors of heaven, as it were, again and again. That Christ Himself might enter in and spread the feast before us. That we may never grow weary of seeking His aid. That we may never forget just how needy we are for His power to come and to strengthen and to fortify and to raise His people up to behold their God. That we might know, oh God, that we might know the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That we might have the Spirit of the living God come and descend down upon us in such a way that our worship would not be business as usual. But that it would result in sweet precious, lasting communion with our God so that when we leave out of this place, the fragrance of God is upon us. The shining of the glory of God, like Moses having been in the presence of God, would linger long upon us. Oh, that we might pray, Lord, give us your Spirit. And then, brethren, we must never forget, but guard with extreme jealousy the truth of whose we are and what we are dealing with. 
If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I don't think much needs to be said about that. May God help us to never defile this temple. May God help us to never defile it by our absenting ourselves from it. May God help us to never defile it by our lowering our view of it. May God help us to never defile it by asserting our own purposes or our own desires into the midst of it. May God help us to never defile the temple of God, to never set upon the altar of God strange fire, to never reach out our hand and touch the ark of God, but to let it be what He has commanded it to be, holy unto Himself. Oh, may God spare us. And may God help us. And may God strengthen us. That His name, His name might be exalted. Oh Lord God, we pray, help us. None of us that name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place, none of us want to be found among the number of those who would defile or destroy Your precious temple. But Lord, we can through the subtlety of Satan and temptation and our remaining corruption, we can forget what a high and noble and wonderful thing the temple of God is. And we can walk into the midst of it and trample it, Lord, by our low views of it, by our inattention, by our failure to labor, to really enter in and worship. God, spare us. And set in our minds, set in our hearts, set in our affections, the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of this temple of God, the city of God, your church, your kingdom, your footstool, where your presence dwells. Oh God, pour out your blessing. We ask for your spirit that we might continue to be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.